Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He was born Gaius Octavius Thurinus. Come 44 BC, he was posthumously adopted by one Julius Caesar. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, this Gaius Octavius Thurinus was adopted in the last will and testament of Julius Caesar. He was renamed Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius. But it didn't work for him. He didn't really like the name. It was fine being in the family line. He was actually a nephew of of Julius Caesar. But in 27 BC, Octavius gained full power over Rome, becoming what people would later call the first Roman emperor. World ruler par excellence. And Octavius was not happy with either his name or his title. Emperor wasn't big enough. It wasn't austere enough. And Caesar... That certainly wasn't big enough for a great grand world leader either. He wanted something else. There was big debate and discussion. Many options were brought before him, but he finally settled upon one that he liked the most, Augustus. I think of Augustus Gloop. But back then, (laughs) Augustus, meaning dignified, you know, stately, impressive. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the August one, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. You recall the story. Caesar is now the grand ruler, Augustus, over everything. And he looks out and he says, I want to know how many people I rule. Let's find out. And I don't care if it's an imposition for people. Let's find out how great I really am, and so out goes the word. Everybody has to return to their hometown for a census. Well, Joseph also went up from Galilee. I love the contrast. Caesar Augustus. Joseph, you know. Common man goes up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house, and he was of the house and family of David. He had to go there to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And you know the rest of the story. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, foretold 750 years earlier. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall not be called Augustus. But wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And I just love the story. Because Caesar Augustus, the august one, is looking to display his grandeur, his global rule. But in all earth, he was a puppet. He was a puppet king whose strings were in the hand of God. And God played him like a violin. Caesar, who thought he was proclaiming his grandeur, his greatness, was actually, in reality, precisely fulfilling a prophecy of the king's birthplace. You see, no man in his right mind is going to take his pregnant wife, about to give birth, on a trip to the hometown. (laughs) There needed to be a little motivation, and God used Caesar for the motivation. And it had to be, you know this, Bible students, it had to be Bethlehem. Not any Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And that's the way it is with God. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Big names dominate the headlines. World rulers congratulate themselves on the world stage. But the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Be it Augustus or Obama. It doesn't matter. The leader's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Tiberius or Bush makes no difference. Caligula or Clinton. I'm not pairing these names purposefully. Truly, I'm just going down the line. Anyway, the reality is God is turning the water channels. More on this on Sunday. Verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And I love how this follows verse 1, because divine involvement is not limited to kings and rulers. God doesn't stop with the big names. He goes right to the little person, the commoner, the average Joe. And the average Joe is out there just trying to get along in life, and God is weighing the heart. Now, what's great about this is here we see the difference between man's concerns and God's concerns. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. Man is primarily concerned with appearing right. Aren't we? Isn't that kind of at the top of the list? Or we may not want to admit it, but we want to appear right within ourselves. We look for self-justification. We surround ourselves with friends and people who will agree with our choices, our behavior, our lifestyles. Whether we're actually right or wrong is beside the point. We want to appear right. And so every man's way is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. While we are primarily concerned with appearing right, God is primarily concerned with our becoming righteous in Him. It's about heart-level honesty. While man is projecting being right within himself, God is inspecting deep inside the heart, and he knows exactly what's going on in there, and there's no fool in him. He's weighing out the motives of the heart. He told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you know, here's why God wants me to be righteous. He knows That if my heart is not right, my ways will not be right. So rather than dealing first with the ways or the look, the outward appearance, God goes straight to the inside and says, let's work here. Because if we make this good, everything else is going to follow. Man's ways seem right to his own eyes, but God is looking at the heart. And He's willing to roll up His sleeves and get to work on your heart, on my heart. The question is, are we willing? Are you willing to allow the Lord to get to work on your heart? You know what it takes? It takes a willingness simply to be real with God. I'm not going to play the games. I'm not going to do the pretense. I'm just going to be real with the Father. Here's what I've got, Lord. The good, the bad, and the ugly, laying it out before you. I'd really like to get rid of the bad and the ugly. 
And I'd like you to enhance the good. <laughs> and being honest and authentic and genuine with God. That, that's the road to righteousness. Not some puffed up false religion as you're going to see as we go. Verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. We could say more than religion. Because sacrifice in the Hebrew Scriptures, the picture is going up to the temple to do the religious requirement. And God said, I'd far rather that you be about righteousness and justice much more than than sacrifice. And we're still dealing here with the motives of the heart rather than the maneuverings of outward appearance. If you're into the appearance of righteousness, you're going to be more into religious sacrifice. But if you want to be right with God, you're going to care about the things He cares about, which is true righteousness, justice. I love the story. Jesus was reclining in the house, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and His disciples. When the Pharisees saw, they said to His disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Outward appearance. This does not look good. Why would He do this? When Jesus heard, He said, You know, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, if I can put it in other words, I did not come to call those who are pretending to be right. I came to call those who know they're wrong. And in the knowing have a complete opportunity now to find healing in Jesus. Again, it takes an honest look at the truth. An honest desire... To be made righteous. Do you want to be made righteous by the Lord or not? Now, you may be surprised, but I know many Christians who simply don't. Who are comfortable in their lifestyle. They believe in Jesus. They like the teachings. They want to go to church. They want to have that on their record. But they really don't want to change behavior. I sometimes don't want to change behavior. Because certain behaviors of mine I kind of like. You know, it's the whole... I'm not going to get into the working out thing. It's too painful. But you know what I mean. There are things you'd, you'd like to change perhaps in your life, but they go head to head with things that are more comfortable, more, you know, you just like living this way. And so a lot of people throw up their hands and go, well, I'll give this much of myself to the Lord. This over here is not that big a deal, so we're just going to let it ride. God says, no, I want you to be completely right. I want to work on the nooks and the crannies in your life. Verse 4, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. The lamp of the wicked is sin. So what is the lamp of the wicked? Look at the verse. Haughty eyes and a proud heart is the lamp of the wicked, which is sin. Pride is the lamp of of the wicked. Skip down to verse 24. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. The lamp of the wicked is pride. Now that's interesting as a description. The lamp of the wicked is pride. You know, a lamp doesn't generate light. A lamp in and of itself is pretty much worthless without a power source. You know, you can go to someone out in the middle of the woods who's stranded with no light, no way of seeing in the dark, and hand them a nice floor lamp. A beautiful, nice, perfectly 
purchased floor lamp from Target. <laughs> and they have this lamp. It's like, what's this for? Well, it's, you know, just in case you need it. And then you disappear and they stand there in the darkness. There's no power source. The lamp of the wicked is pride. Now, think about that picture. It, it needs something to get it to light up. It needs to be fed from the outside, some kind of power source. And the lamp of the wicked, that is pride, is, is lit up when people are impressed. And when people come along and they fawn over you or they wow over you what you've done or what you've accomplished, it's constantly having to be rejuvenated. It's like a bad generator. You know? The lamp of the wicked. It flickers. Oh, we got to get some more gas in this. So you got to do something else impressive that you can be proud of that will wow other people to keep the lamp of the wicked lit. Otherwise, the power source goes out. But the light of the righteous is the Spirit of God. Proverbs 13, verse 9, we looked at several weeks ago, says the following, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. The wicked has a lamp. The righteous has a light. The righteous doesn't have a light, that, a lamp that goes out, a lamp that is useless. The righteous has the light. A lamp, again, needs power. A light is power. And even the wicked see it. I just love the story. One of my favorites in Scripture. We touched on it a couple weeks back. Belshazzar. A stupid grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His dad's off fighting in campaigns. So Belshazzar is kind of left there in, in Babylon, in the capital He's left there to look over the kingdom and he starts having a drunken party and he says, hey, bring some of those golden vessels from the storehouse, you know, stuff from that temple in Jerusalem. Let's drink out of those. And they get those in there and they're just partying it up and they're drunk and all of a sudden a hand appears. I, God is so amazing. What style, you know? Just a hand. They don't need a whole body. Just send a hand down. Okay. And starts to write on the wall where we get the phrase, the handwriting's on the wall. And they're looking at this writing on the wall. Daniel chapter 5, you can read the story. I'll paraphrase. And we're told in Daniel chapter 5, long about verse 6, it's a great description. Belshazzar sees this. We're told his face gets pale. And we're told that his thoughts alarmed him. And his knees knocked together. And he wet himself. It is in Scripture. Now, if you want to be King James, this you would say his hips went slack. But he wet himself. Which is what you do when a hand appears and begins to write on a wall before you. They didn't know what to do. What do we do here? And Belshazzar is, is, is freaking out. And one of his advisors says, hey, there, there was a guy uh, who was here before. I think he's still around. He was one of the advisors to Nebuchadnezzar. A wise man. Call him in. Maybe he can help. They called Daniel. Now, all that just to say this. Listen to the description that Belshazzar, the wicked Belshazzar, uses when he sees and talks to and talks about Daniel. Daniel 5.14 Now, I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you. Now, remember, this is from a wicked perspective. He doesn't get it. But there's a spirit here. And he says, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom are in you. I read that again this week. I thought, that is, man, that's great. When the spirit of God is in you, when you have the light 
of the Lord, as opposed to the lamp of the wicked, that who knows if it's going to go on or, or off. But the light of the Lord comes with illumination and insight and truly extraordinary wisdom. Not ordinary, extraordinary wisdom. Which is what's brought to us, given to us by the Spirit of the Lord. These things are by the light of the Spirit of the living God. So, the lamp of the wicked is sin. I would much rather have the light of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. And this is a good one to put the brakes on for. Because in American culture, we can very easily confuse diligence with hastiness. And they are not the same thing. As a matter of fact, they're very different. Diligence is not synonymous with a hurried, harried life. Oh, but i got to be diligent. i got to get it done. That's not diligence. Diligent planning. Jesus was diligent. Jesus never hurried. He never rushed. He was never... Did you ever see Jesus stressed out? Oh, we've got to get to Lazarus' house because he's sick. Come on, run, guys, run. What? There's a sick woman over here? Okay, run. Oh, a sick daughter? Run, run. You don't see Jesus doing that. That's the Gospel according to Rick. Not my life, you know. Not Jesus. He moves at a slow pace. He's never rushed. He planned diligently all the time. Okay, when? When did we see Jesus planning diligently? Let me read this to you. Isaiah 50 verse 4 tells us, Jesus speaking here, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And think just for a moment about the picture of diligent planning in the hands of Jesus. This is how it works. This is diligence for you. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Diligent planning. There it is. First thing in the morning. It was His custom. As we just heard from Isaiah 50 verse 4, this is customary for Jesus. Often getting out early in the morning by Himself with the Lord. Praying. It's diligent planning. Read further. Simon and his companions searched for Him. They found Him. And they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And the implication here is in Capernaum. Everyone's looking for you back in Capernaum. Lord, come on, we've got to get back to the city. We've got to get back where the hustle and bustle is. We've got to get back to the people there. And Jesus said to them, let's go somewhere else. To the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. The towns nearby. You might just note this in a margin or something. The word towns in the Greek is komopolis. Komopolis means literally unwalled villages. Okay? Unwalled villages. These places were not significant enough on the map to even have walls. Capernaum was walled. 
Other villages were walled, the larger, more substantial ones. Now, Capernaum wasn't huge, but still, it was a pretty, you know, it was a seaport there uh, on the Sea of Galilee. It was important. Jesus said, no, 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 we're not going to go back to the important town today. We're going to go out to the little villages, uh, the podunk places. You know, Whitby Island. (laughs) Fidalgo. Let's go over to Fidalgo, you know. I used to call Anacortes Podunkville when we first moved up here. I did, because, you know, living in Southern California where there's con- it's constant movement and there everything that you could possibly ever need, want, or desire is right there at your fingertips, which, by the way, is a bad thing. And we moved up here, and I'm like, we got one, what, two grocery stores? Are you kidding me? How much? There's not, you, I can't even choose between McDonald's, there's just one? What is that? Podunk. Jesus said, let's go to Podunk. Let's go there. I need to preach there for, look at this. This is what I came for, and there are two possible meanings to that. Either this is what I came from heaven to do, or this is what I got up early to do today. This is what I came from my place of prayer, my diligent planning. I came from that. This is what we're to do today. Diligent planning. It's not hurried, it's not rushed, but it is purposeful. And Jesus had it down. I love that. Lord, what's, what's the plan today? We've, we've gone over this several times, especially here on Wednesday nights. That this whole idea of starting the day with God and asking this question, Lord, what, what for today? I'm not going to ask about tomorrow or the day after that or next week or next month, but today. What's the plan today, Lord? You want to be diligent in your spiritual walk. That's a great way to start every morning. What is the plan today? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, a familiar verse to you all. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Have you watched the eagles around here fly? How much do you see them flap? Not a lot. You want to mount up with wings like eagles? You want to glide with the Lord? Not rushed, not hurried, keeping the eyes open until they see the prey. And down they go. And that's a great picture for us. We'll mount up with wings like eagles. He doesn't say like sparrows. Those who wait on the Lord. (laughs) Those who wait on the Lord will have the strength of eagles, they'll have vision. They'll have good plans. They they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The wicked wicked fly by the seat of their pants. But not those who plan diligently with the Lord. Back to Proverbs chapter 21. The next several Proverbs kind of explain this whole issue of the wicked flying by the seat of their pants. Picking it up in verse 6, the acquisition of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. Dishonest gain. You're just pursuing nothing. The violence of the wicked, verse 7, will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. The picture there is a courtroom. Because you refuse to act justly in your life, you're going to be dragged away by justice. You see that going on around us. In different court cases, the, the whole Blagovich case came down this last, was it this last week. And 17 out of 20 counts guilty. Justice. 
If you're not going to live with justice, you're going to be captured by justice, and that's what he's talking about there. Verse 8, The way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright, or the word literally there is straight. It's a great contrast. The way of the the guilty man is crooked, the way of the pure is straight. Verse 9, It is better to live... It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. (laughs) Verse 19, skip down. Let's get it all out right now. Verse 19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Do you suppose, now just, I don't know this for sure, but do you suppose Solomon may have been trying to write out these Proverbs when one of his many wives was calling out, Solomon, take out the trash. Solomon, walk the dog. Solomon, you need to do the vacuuming. And he's like, contentious woman, you know. Better to live in a corner of a roof. I love the picture. Can you imagine? You can just imagine driving through town and seeing a bunch of guys sitting up on the corner of the roof. This is a guy who just had to get out of the house, you know. (laughs) 700 wives and 300 concubines. No doubt Solomon must have longed for a quiet corner on the roof or a desert getaway. (laughs) Well, you can blame him all you want, but uh, you know... Have you heard about the guy who uh, who said, wow, I, I didn't know what happiness was until I got married, and then it was too late. <laughs> Sorry. And they say, they say, and truly, truly, seriously, a peaceful marriage is heavenly, a contentious marriage is hellish. And it really is the case. It is the case. You know, we laugh because there are so many of us in marriage relationships and we've heard so much about marriage relationships. And yet there's an awful lot of pain that comes in marriage relationships. And I I know that, you know, Solomon's pointing out a a contentious woman here. And and let me just remind you throughout Scripture, I've said before, for every one woman that's called out, ten men are. Okay? So ladies, please don't feel like the Word of God is picking on you because there are plenty of call-outs for men throughout Scripture. And Solomon is pointing out something that's very true. I mean, it, it can, and not in my marriage. My marriage, I do not have a contentious wife. I just want that to be on tape. But, <laughs> and I do. I've got, I've got a great marriage. I called Cheryl this morning. I was over in Anacortes doing stuff, and she was, and I haven't hardly seen her today, and I, I called her up and I said, I'm just glad I married you, because I am. I really am. What do I do if I'm in a bad marriage. What do you do if the marriage is contentious? Be it from the wife or from the husband or both head to head. What do you do? All I can tell you is that you invite the spirit of peace to come in. You invite the spirit of peace. But what if my spouse... I didn't say anything about your spouse. You invite the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to be present. But they won't go there. Will you go there? There's no other way. There's truly, I, I, when, especially when it starts to get bad, I, I have no other solutions. 
If you call me up and say, Rick, I need to talk to you. I'm having marital problems. And we sit down and we, get, we begin to talk. And those of you who have had conversations with me have heard me say this. you got to pray. I, I got nothing else. Well, some pastor you are. No, it's true. I got nothing. I can't solve that. I, I, I get overwhelmed because as one man, I look at some of the situations and just think, I don't, I don't know. What do you do? And I know. I was like, wow, this is a great pastor. You invite God into it because He knows what to do. You ask the Spirit of Christ to be present. You wake up in the morning and as you're saying, Lord, what for today? You say, Holy Spirit, please be here. Surround me. If my wife is contentious, may I not be. If my husband is contentious, may I not be. Holy Spirit, would you be peace in the house? And you follow the Lord, and you listen to the Lord, and you walk in the peace of the Spirit. And if the spouse does not, God will deal with them. But for your part in it. Paul said, as much as it's possible for you, be at peace with all men. As far as you're concerned. Can't control them. You can control you. Invite the Spirit in. For the mindset on the flesh is death. And that's part of the reason so many marriages die, because it becomes a flesh-to-flesh battle. Romans 8.6 But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And I promise you this, especially if, if you're in that place, if you will set your mind on the Spirit of peace, then even if things go awry and never get healed with a spouse, because for whatever reason they refuse to accept the peace of the Lord, you at least will be able to walk with serenity and with peace and with calm and with tranquility because you are being guided by the Spirit. And that's the best that I've got to give. And by the way, I think it's a lot better than a lot of this counseling slop that's out there. I believe God gave us marriage. Um, Not so we would contentiously blow in and out and in and out and in and out of multiple relationships, but so that we could learn on the front lines faithfulness and unselfishness and forgiveness so that we can learn to love the way He loves. And you might say, okay, but if I try to be peaceful, if I try to be loving, what if they don't reciprocate? How well has the world reciprocated the Father's love? Not real well. In fact, there are those who for all that God has done, all the love that He's shown, the forgiveness, the opportunity for redemption, there are people who still thumb their noses at God, shake their fists at God, and those who will have nothing to do with Him. And He loves anyway. That's the example. That's the picture. Verse 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. In other words, the more wicked you become, the less grace you have for other people. The more you desire, and it doesn't mean that you just happen to be mean to everybody. It's the more you desire sin and evil and things that are ungodly, the more you're just going to not like people. The more you're not going to be the kind of person who really cares about anybody but yourself. When the scoffer is punished, verse 11, the naive or the simpleton becomes wise. In other words, they wise up. They, they can be taught. 
But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. A wise person disciplined takes in knowledge, understanding, and it becomes part of who they are. It's not just, oh, I better not do that, I'll get in trouble next time. It's, oh, I understand that, and it becomes part of a wise walk, of a wise person. Verse 12. Now watch this. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. I had to read through that a few times because I was thinking, oh, okay, so the righteous one, a Christian, looks at the house of the wicked, considers it and goes, oh, yeah, I see, I see the mess that they're causing. That's not what it says. The righteous one here has to be Jesus. I would capitalize the R and the O. The righteous one, it has to be the Lord. First of all, because He's the subject. The righteous one is the subject of the proverb, which means it's the righteous one who is turning the wicked to ruin. It's not the house of the wicked. It's the righteous one who's doing it. The word turn there, or turning, kalaf in the Hebrew means overthrows. So read that way, the righteous one considers the house of the wicked overthrowing the wicked to ruin. The word ruin. Ra in the Hebrew simply means wickedness. So what it's telling us here in this proverb is the righteous one overthrows the wicked, listen, to their wickedness. The righteous one overthrows the wicked to their wickedness. Does that sound ring a bell for anybody? Does that sound familiar? Turning your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Head right until you get to Rome. Okay. Romans chapter 1, and just watch this for a moment, because this is truly how God is interacting with the world, at least for right now. This is what He's doing. This is God's response, His immediate response, to wicked, evil choices and behavior. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over. Okay? The righteous one overthrows. Gives over. God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurities. It's the same thing we just read. He overthrows the wicked to their wickedness. God hands them over to their own sin. Is what it's telling us. In the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And that is an expose on environmentalism. It's worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. It's, it's highlighting and raising up the created things above the Creator Himself. Verse 20, for this reason, second time Paul says this, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men committing indecent acts and receiving with men, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And by the way, isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't just call out homosexuality. He describes it. Women with women. Men with men. So that there's no question what he's talking about here. There's no question at all. There are other places where it's translated homosexuality, but, but the word is pornea, which is also sexual immorality, so it could go either way. This, there's no question 
What's being talked about? What is degrading and what is an abomination to the Lord here? It's, it's just obvious. But read on. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, third time he says it, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Why? Think about this. God doesn't come flying in with an immediate punishment. It's not His wrath that people who are doing wicked things are receiving. It's their own wickedness that they're receiving. God says, okay, if you want to function in this evil, in this wickedness, in this sin, here's my response. I'm going to put you right into it. It's all yours. Huh? It's like a son coming home from a party a little drunk in high school and the dad going, you want a drink? Sit down. Goes out to the store, comes back with a, you know, with a keg. Go for it, son. See you in the morning. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good idea. (laughs) But the Lord is saying, you're in this place of, you want to choose wickedness? Well, my first response is not going to be wrath. My first response is to allow you to feel the full weight of your wickedness. Go for it. And see how it works for you. I'll let you sit in it for a while. Let you fester in it. It's interesting because, and I believe the Lord does this now, wrath comes later. But remember, it's in the book of Numbers where it says, be sure your sin will find you out. It's your sin that you feel. It's the weight of the consequence, the guilt, and all the stuff that comes with your sin. It's not God going, uh, 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 uh. It's the Lord saying, you want that lifestyle? You want to live that way? Here you go. He does it that way so that by consequences we might realize our desperate need for a Savior. That's how He's functioning this time around. Now, His wrath's coming. He will pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But right now, what the world feels in response to sin is not the wrath of God. It's not the punishment of God. It's the punishment of their own sin. God gave them over. And what's interesting in Romans chapter 1... Actually, the first three chapters, Paul, in chapter 1, explains man's ungodliness, generic ungodliness. Man outside the law is just ungodly. Then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, and by the way, Jewish people, you're no better. Because by the law, you're ungodly. You can't keep the law. So you're just as bad as the Gentiles mentioned in my first opening parlay here. Now in the second chapter, Jewish people know better. Then he gets to the third chapter, building this case, ultimately saying, no one's righteous. There's not a certain single person on earth who can fit the category who's righteous before God. And then he lowers the boom in chapter 3 of Romans verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is seen, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Wow. There's an aspect of grace that I hadn't really ever considered before. The idea that God gives us over to our sin because He is so gracious that He wants us to realize the filth of it and come rushing back to Him for help. As opposed to just saying, get out of my house. I'll have nothing to do with you anymore. Condemnation. No. No, first it's He gives us over in hopes that we, through the punishment of our own sin, 
will learn from it. So back in Proverbs 21, hear it again. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin, overthrowing the wicked to their own wickedness. Verse 13. Man, you know, every one of these is a sermon. Every proverb is just huge. Huge. And I hope, you know, we're trying to move through these, but I, I hope that with each one of these, you'll take some time and go back and reconsider and think through some of the stuff that we've, you know, sit in just one and really ponder, especially if one stands out to you, maybe circle it and go back and meditate on it through the week. There's so much in these. Verse 13, He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Listen again. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. This implies not only a helping hand, but a feeling heart. It's not just showing up on Saturday to go up and feed some people in Bellingham. It's showing up on Saturday to go up and feed some people in Bellingham and care about them and listen to them. And by the way, the cry of the poor is not always like the coo of a dove. The cry of the poor can be sometimes like the caw of a raven. And uh, Diane, I think it was Diane Cochran, wasn't it, Brian, on Saturday, who got kind of chewed on a little bit? Yeah. I mean, Diane came walking over and she was like, what happened? Well, I just got kind of chewed out. And you think, well, that's who? Who did that? Because we're here to help and they better appreciate what we're here doing, you know. The poor are people just like the richer people, just like the middle class. We're all people. And we're all kind of in this same boat. And it doesn't really matter how the poor respond, good, bad, or indifferent. What matters is the heart that we bring. And I'm again, I'm just so proud of our... Maybe I shouldn't be proud. You know, forgive me, I know the proud, haughty spirit. We talked about that. But I am proud of our homeless ministry. And I'm so excited about what's going on up there. It's just... It's amazing. It's a Jesus quality that I see, that I see in Brian, and I'm embarrassing him, and I see it in Irene, and I'm embarrassing her. I see it in the Hollies. I see it in those who, who, you know, Spencer, who hates when I ever point him out, which is why I just did. I see it in those who are saying, you know, I'm going to take, not because of the giving up of time. That's not the issue. Ooh, they gave up a Saturday. Well, whatever. But it's, it's the heart. It's, it's sitting there after all of the feeding was done and the, most of the clothing was passed out. And I, I was sitting there chatting with, with Tim. And as we were talking, I'm looking around and I'm seeing people from the bridge all over the place just talking to homeless people, ministering. You know that they wear blue hats, the men wear blue hats, and the women wear green hats. You know why? So that we can tell the difference <laughs> between bridge people and homeless people. I guess that's how we look. I don't know. But I think it's marvelous that you can't tell the difference. You know, there's ministry taking place. Not just a helping hand, but a feeling heart. It's not just identifying the problem, it's identifying with those who are poor. Go up there on a Saturday. You will be blessed. Verse 14. Oh, I like this one. I like them all. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom, strong wrath, subdues it. Now, Jacob knew this. Jacob learned it. 
I was going to read you the story. I'm not going to. Let me just tell it to you. It's in Genesis chapter 32. But what's marvelous, Jacob rips off his brother Esau, gets away with the birthright, gets away with the blessing, and he takes off because Esau is ready to kill him. In fact, as soon as old, as soon as uh, Isaac dies, Esau is saying, that's it, Jacob is lunch meat. Well, Jacob gets out of there. Twenty years he goes and lives off in Haran and, and travels around, and finally he's coming back now. And as he makes his way back toward home, he hears that Esau is coming to meet him. Oh, I wonder if he's still ticked off about the whole soup birthright thing. <laughs> And one of his, so he sends out a little messenger. The messenger goes out there and the messenger comes back and says, yeah, I saw Esau. He's coming. He's got 400 armed men with him. Oh, oh, that's not good. So what does wily Jacob do? He's so smart. Genesis 32 tells the story. He starts setting up groups of animals, you know, rams and, and ewes and, and female cows and, and bulls, and, and sends them in what the Bible calls droves. He sends one group first with some servants, and then sends a second group, and then a third group, and then a fourth group, five or six different droves of gifts for Esau. And these things go out first. So that by the time Esau gets to Jacob, he will have been blessed with all of these gifts. You know, Jacob's trying to butter up, soften up his brother. Now he didn't have to do that. You find out when Esau sees him, he runs to him, he hugs him, he's glad to see him, he bygones be bygones, that kind of thing. You know, probably slaps him on the back. Oh, it's great to see you. Big gruff Esau and you know, little tent guy, Jacob going, ow, that kinda of hurt. But, <laughs> but there's there's Great love and affection there. I, I love this because Jacob, he's doing the secret gifting thing. And, that, and that's what the Proverbs talking about. And it's a good example of it. A gift in secret subdues anger. Here's the application for you and me. If there's bitterness in your marriage, if there's estrangement with a family member, if you're, you're struggling in a relationship, you've got some kind of a problem, here's what you do. You give them a secret gift. I'm not talking like, you know, a little gift shows up. You give them a secret gift. Secretly start praying for them. Don't tell them. Because if you tell them, you might tick them off. You know I'm praying for you. Oh, well, that's just fine coming from you. No. Don't do that. Don't tell them. Secretly gift them. Pray for them secretly. Start lifting them up constantly, daily, morning by morning. When you're asking the Lord what today is going to bring, when you're inviting the spirit of peace into the relationship, you also pray for the person. Jesus said in Matthew 6.6, 6, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Shh, don't tell anyone. Just do it. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Best answer to a broken, angry, difficult relationship Offer them the secret gift of secret prayer.